Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a digital content creator, patient advocate, and co-founder of Fertility Matters at Work, which is on a mission to get you better supported whilst going through all this at work. And I had my son after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. In this new series of the Fertility Podcast, we're going behind the scenes of IVF. Do listen to the end of every episode because we want to hear from you. Let's get stuck in. This series of the Fertility Podcast is sponsored by Tomorrow, whose mission is to safeguard life's most precious cells using their technology to bring a new standard of care to the management of frozen eggs and embryos. Now, the millions of frozen eggs and embryos under clinic care today are using tools and technologies not updated in decades. When Tomorrow came along, it brought much needed innovation to IVF labs. Learn more by visiting tomorrow.org. That's T-M-R-W.org. Hello, it's Natalie. Before we start this episode, I'm just re-editing what I'd originally planned to share with you. A bit of behind the scenes, you can't see me, but it's Sunday morning, I'm in my pyjamas, because I was all ready to go with this episode on Thursday, and then on Friday, there was an announcement from the HFEA about a change in the storage limit for our frozen embryos. So from the 1st of July, and this episode is coming out to you on the 4th of July, 2020, in the UK, All patients can now store their eggs, sperm and embryos for their own treatment for up to 55 years, providing you give your consent every 10 years. Now, donors can store their eggs or sperm for up to 55 years and do not need to renew their consent. And as long as patients consent to their sperm, eggs or embryos being used in the event of their death, they can remain in storage for up to 10 years from the day they pass away. I know that's a bit morbid, but it's important to know about these things. And I just wanted to add this into this episode in light of what we're talking about, because we're talking about the issue around our frozen materials, how it is a growing inventory and how hard it is to make the decision on what you're going to do with them. I'm not going to say any more because I explain it more in the episode. I just wanted to add this bit in to the podcast. There's going to be links in the show notes for you to read what the HFEA are saying and follow them on Instagram if this is something that is relevant to you in terms of that storage time changing. I really hope you find this episode useful. I appreciate that that is very UK specific. If you're listening, as we know you are around the world, I also want to just say happy 4th of July to our listeners in the US and I hope you enjoy this episode. We're going to be talking about frozen embryos and it is a topic that I know can be quite triggering. So I'm just forewarning you that that is what we're talking about before we get started. It's something that personally, if you've heard our story, you'll know that we donated them to science. And that's not something that I'm going to talk about in this episode. Forgive me for not talking about it right now, but it was a very hard decision and one that is bittersweet in terms of us knowing that we were helping the scientific community, but it has meant our son doesn't have a sibling. And that's something that I'm still navigating those conversations. But Kate, we know that frozen embryos cause a lot of anguish to our patients, don't we? They talk all the time about being in limbo. Yeah, totally. And, uh, you know, a lot of my patients will, will really have to be thinking really carefully about whether they're going to use their embryos and they're fully aware that they've got their embryos there and the anxiety that that causes knowing they're there and particularly if there's only one left as well, because that's their insurance policy. And so it's that decision of do you use it or do you keep it there knowing it's there? 
And it is that really funny place, whether you hold on to it, whether you can afford more treatment, it feels so unfair not to hold on to this precious material. But as we know, the popularity of IVF continues to grow. More people become aware of it and have access to it. Therefore, we know that there is an issue in cycles happening and therefore there being more embryos in storage. We talked previously about the kind of futuristic side of cryo storage and what it looks like in terms of what's available from a technology point of view. You heard uh, Cynthia and Elizabeth talking about Tomorrow, who are also sponsoring this podcast series. What we're going to do in this episode is just explore of the embryo storage scene. We're going to welcome back Giles Palmer, who was a guest on our How Happy Is Your Embryologist conversation, which I hope you've listened to. He has been on the podcast before. He's come back to meet Kate and to talk to us about his findings. Um, Giles knows a lot on this topic, so I think what you're going to hear is a really interesting insight. So welcome to the Fertility Podcast, Giles. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me here again. And as a starting point, there was a paper that you'd sent me. You, you've sent me lots of interesting things to look at, and I'd forwarded this paper onto Kate Kate loves the paper. Um, and it was written by yourself and your colleague, Jack Cohen. He'd said, there are some jurisdictions that have adopted guidelines to limit storage, but most countries do not have such rules and clinics remain in an uncertain environment, either storing embryos in perpetuity or discarding them without a clear regulatory framework. Now, we know that in the UK, for example, the storage limits have changed to to a decade. But I think as a starting point, if you can just set the scene a bit about what's going on with embryo storage to paint the picture for the patient? Sure. A lot is going on about embryo storage and in fact even more now than ever. You mentioned a little bit about you know different like jurisdictions and what's happening. Well each country has its own law okay on that and you spoke about the one in the UK but even so um, and it's very uncomfortable for for embryologists to actually um, like chase up the samples okay. They're in storage as you say Many clinics, they have a storage charge, but this really is so that people keep in touch. We do know that there's a growing inventory of embryos and eggs and sperm for many reasons, which are sort of building up. And this is the problem for every clinic in the world and every clinic in the world is talking about this. So especially when there's a storage fee attached, um, it's sometimes left to the embryologist or sometimes one of the clinic staff to actually sort of like, let's say for use of a better word, chase up the couples. And it's very uncomfortable. And I can understand it's it's incredibly difficult for the patients themselves as well. You know, what are they going to do with the embryos? Even if the storage fees sort of like mount up, okay, and get bigger and bigger, are you going to pay quite a hefty amount of money? And then again, the word I'm going to use is discard the embryos afterwards. So, you know, do you keep them there because they are in limbo and you haven't got to make the decision? Or do you actually have a decision and either use them or discard them, or in fact, even give them to research? Now, all over the world, there's different solutions to this. In some countries, you cannot start a fresh IVF cycle until you've used up all your embryos in storage. That's not the case in the UK. So you can, in fact, sort of collect more and more embryos. Other countries, and this is quite strange, but this is dating back from an old law, is that um, the embryos which you have have to be transferred back to the uterus, whatever happens. So you have a thing called compassionate embryo transfer. So you transfer the embryos back at a time where the woman is not going to get pregnant, which of course, and I can see uh, we're on a podcast now, but I can see that your jaws are both opening. So it's really what happens. And then all together with this, all together with this, there's a religious 
aspect of it, which sometimes entered in, uh, into some laws, okay? There was quite a strict law in Italy because of the Catholic faith recently. But each country has its own, you know, IVF laws, and that's based on their history. That's based on their primary religion and also, you know, on the culture that, that they live in. So all that in a nutshell means that, you know, cryo storage is, for use of a pun, it's a very hot topic. Giles, I'm just... Well, as you know, my, my jaw dropped. I, I just want to go back to that because I'm shocked that that decision to do a compassionate transfer would be made based on the fact that you're actually putting women through another invasive procedure that is unwarranted well, and unnecessary. Well, no, that is, of course, with the consent, you know, of the female. Okay, of first of all, and if you think about it, and I'm just going back in time and thinking about when I had to speak to patients about their samples, a lot of patients wanted to actually come into the clinic and see us discard them, which basically means see them thaw. Now, some clinics allow that. I'm not talking about the UK. I'm, I'm not exactly sure how it's in the UK, but it's so emotive that they weren't allowed to take those samples away from them, obviously, but they were allowed to see that I would take out the sample, they would read the name, they would see that their name and their code is on there, and they'd be left to thaw. So the oldest IVF laws are the most strict, and now the laws which have been done in the last 10 and 20 years, they are the most liberal, and that's the fact that our society has changed, you know, more about science, but the first IVF laws you know, in the world were quite strict because they didn't really, really know what was going on. But again, for religious reasons, some people prefer to do this compassionate embryo transfer. It's interesting that you bring in the religious conversation because when we were making the decision about what to do with ours, I actually went to, there's a, a Jewish organisation called Hannah, which has support. And I was asking whether there was any kind of acknowledgement. I'm not hugely religious. It's more an identity thing. But I, for this instance, wanted to know whether there might be anything that we could have as like a little prayer if we were going to go down that route. There wasn't. But it was something that we put that attachment to in the whole conversation, having gone through making the decision, the options that you've said. I mean, the language that you've used alone, Giles, I don't know whether you've heard the patient feedback on language like discard and perish because it's something that is pretty triggering as well. And I think it's something that, and I just want to draw attention to that if you are listening to it and thinking, oh, unfortunately, it is the language that's used, isn't it, Giles? And and I think yes, the patient's right. feeling you know, about it. I wish there was quite, better. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it hasn't yeah. quite, they have, the two haven't quite connected to find better language. But I think that idea of the compassionate transfer is something that maybe would have been something that we, it's a difficult one because we were in this place of do we just, because we didn't want to just let them go as as the way that we were referring to, as I said at the start, we were talking about donating it. It is a minefield. And, you know, and again, as I mentioned, you know, about storage fees, that in itself is difficult, you know, but couples do separate, they do move. And it is very, very difficult, um, you know, to keep track of these samples, especially over so many years. We're heading for a perfect storm of cryo storage, which is that we've got better freezing techniques. So before it was slow freezing, and now it's vitrification, okay, which has a high success. More and more people are freezing their embryos. Less embryos are going back to create a pregnancy. We've got the single embryo transfer, okay, which is more and more popular. In the olden days, we used to put several embryos. Now we put, put back a single embryo. And I could see from the um, Jax's uh, narrative on the paper, he talked about the fact that with every successful IVF treatment, five eggs or embryos are in storage, which is really interesting, isn't it? And, you know, more and more people are freezing the samples. They are taking perhaps one embryo, they're throwing that, you know, they are transferring that. 
and more and more people are freezing for many reasons. They can, they can be freezing for fertility preservation, whether it's for, you know, by choice or just before they're going through very hazardous treatments such as chemotherapy and radiotherapy. So this tied with the old-fashioned way that we've been storing and monitoring the storage containers, this is leading to like a perfect storm of how do we deal with this growing inventory. And that's why a lot of people now and companies, as you said, like Tomorrow and other companies, are looking at ways of what they can do with these, um, this growing inventory. You mentioned before about, um, you know, about for every one transfer, how many embryos are left. Um, there was a study which we did, which was presented um, this year at Fertility 2022. Um, and it sort of did an inventory of what we had in our tanks. And, and this was with a clinic which I work with in Europe. And um, it showed that there was um, a 300% increase in embryos stored over five years. But if you were not pregnant, then 75% of the, of the patients would go back for their embryos. Obviously, I think when they had the money, they'd do that. But if they were, but if they were pregnant and it was a happy and successful continuation of that at birth, only 16% were going back. So again, we are sort of creating this large amount of storage problems. A job that I have in the UK, every year we used to buy a new Dewar. A Dewar is when it's large containers, these vats that you see. Uh, when people show you, you know, pictures of frozen embryos, you see someone opening up, you know, this dewar it's called, and, and you see the mist come out and it, and it, look, it look, looks very nice. We would buy one of these um, every year. And my last job as, as I had before lockdown was to um, actually design or actually start to uh, knock down a wall to make the clinic bigger so that we could store these samples. So all these clinics, and this is around the world, are having problems with storage. Where can they store these samples? And there's now a growing tendency to think, shall we store them in-house, as they've been doing since the start of IVF, or off-site storage? Okay, And a lot of centers in, um, in the States are, in fact, um, storing the samples outside, Okay, at, at, at like a third-party clinic, which is like a, um, a bio-repository, which is specific for that means. So we obviously have shared conversation with Tomorrow, who we've been talking to, who have created this futuristic style cryo storage. And I was there having a demo and hopefully you've listened to it and got a taste of this like robotic element. And it does look something quite space age. So from a space point of view, and I don't mean up high space, I mean space literally, this is the kind of solution we're talking about, aren't we, in terms of ability to store more. But what I also thought was interesting when you talk about the ability to get hold of people are we saying that this more modern approach of cryo storage enables people to be better traced? Sure, because it's all electronic. Whatever happens with your labeling, with your electronic records, which you have, which is like benchtop labeling. Okay, so of course, in um, every good IVF lab, they have the electronic witnessing, but that stops as soon as it goes into the liquid nitrogen. There's various, like you know, like compartments in in the liquid nitrogen. Okay, but now you can actually know exactly where it is all of the time. And put together with all the, uh, you know, with, with, with all the monitoring which is going on with various new platforms, such as the company that you mentioned, it means that it's much more reliable and and it can be traceable because you still have to do audits of your samples, and every time you do an audit, it means you have to open up, you know, uh, 
this storage container and check the MBOs are, are in the right place and, and have the right number and so forth. Because um, the thing about the space is that um, when people design labs, it really is the, the last thing you think about is like the storage room. You know, you think about IVF, you think about the clinic, you think about the theater, you think about the lab. In any of the IVF websites, you never see where they actually store, store the embryos there. So that's an important thing to take home. But as far as Jew is concerned, is, um, these are these large vats that we keep these containers in. Um, these haven't changed, you know, for decades. And the first thing you do when you buy a new one is to retrofit them. You put them... Uh, you put electronic alarms on them um, with the bells and whistles, and they're monitored 24-7. So in every lab around the world, that, that'll be connected whatever time of the day it is to an embryologist who will be at the beck and the call. But now with work and with the increased um, you know, awareness of the problem of cryostorage and what to do about this, um, there has been a need for change. And 2018 was what we're calling like a year of reckoning, um, Jacques' wife, Mina Alakani, um, wrote a paper about th that fact just after um, uh, a very horrific year, which happened, um, as I said, in 2018, where simultaneously there was, um, in two separate clinics, strangely on the same weekend, there was two catastrophic disasters with Jewess, oh and they God. lost their samples. Oh, my gosh. Wow. One was in San Francisco, a clinic in France, um, San Francisco, and one was in Cleveland. So one was in Cleveland and one was in San Francisco. The same weekend, there was two disasters, uh, and they lost most or the majority of the samples there. Now, the legal trial is still going on, but there's been, you know, millions and millions given out in compensation. Oh, I can't so this is, So this has, you know, made the market very, yeah. very jittery, okay? It's made insurance, it's made insuring clinics very difficult some insurance companies don't want to touch that but you can see that you know people like ourselves are very you know are, you know are getting nervous and we're scrambling around for the most latest technologies you know what they are and that's why i mentioned some people are um, thinking about storing their samples off-site which can be done in a larger facility uh, it can be done with you know manned 24 7 and it's not sort of like linked to your ivf Clinic. I'm just kind of backing track, really, on when you're talking about tracing and getting hold of patients. I'm thinking about the fact that we're so mobile, aren't we, as, a, as humans these days? We're we're forever moving house. We're perhaps not keeping on top of our admin. I mean, I've moved house in my married life twenty times. Um, I don't know how I would keep track of any, you know, of, of letting people know that of my address change all of that time. So, what do you, what happens when a clinic can't get hold of a patient? Especially, you know, you've reached that point where the embryo storage is up. What do you do? Because if you can't hold the patient, I can't imagine the, the decision you have to make as, right, we're going to sure, yeah, let these yeah. thaw now. When we know that samples um, are going to finish either their time in consent or even for their, let's say, yearly storage, then we will obviously um, have steps in place to actually contact people well, well in advance to say, um, you know, another year has passed, 
um, you know, there is some storage fee or whatever. Because I, okay. I know, Nat, you, you've told me before that when, when you were kind of deciding what you're going to do with your embryos, you received a, a, a letter from the bailiffs, didn't you, really? Well, which... it, was a, it was a, yeah, debt collector letter saying the next step was going to be the bailiffs, which obviously yeah, is not the I kind know, of communication. No, and I know that's no kind need. of, it's yeah, a kind there's of no need for that at all. I know, it's a system I know. that... You know, like I say, it's very ugly and there's, there's not an embryologist that, you know, you, you know, likes that, but he's, but he is in charge of those samples he has to see that, first of all, they are compliant with the law, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but also to make sure the finances are okay, unfortunately. So, so what happens is, you know, the, you know, the embryologist will have to inform if something is out of date, for use of a better word. Now, um, this is done months in advance, okay, and this happens. And, um, you know, often there can be, you know, if it's economical, there can obviously be like an arrangement. And again, it's very difficult to think that, you know, for the, you know, for the sake of money, you have to, um, you know, like give it your chances to have a family. I don't think there's anyone here that would, you know, discard embryos just because of the storage fee. But what we what we do have in the UK, of course, and many countries, is that patients sign a consent form. It's illegal to store samples after someone's consent, and that is a legal thing that we have to sort of comply with. So many months before, we will start to find out what are people's intent. There are many ways nowadays to get in touch with people, and we will do our greatest to get in touch with them. In fact, you know, people go to remarkable uh, deeds to try and get in contact with people if they cannot. At the end of the day, we cannot store the samples uh, after the consent. And since it's a legal thing, the person responsible for every clinic, and here that would be ordained by the HFEA, will have the responsibility to sign a piece of paper saying that those samples can be discarded. But if it's just because someone is lost and they cannot, you know, and they cannot find um, them and they owe money, then you have to be a brave embryologist who would actually take the next step. But it all depends on also the clinic's protocols. There's clear protocols in place, which the, which the patient will read. And it may say after two years, if we haven't heard of you, then this will happen. Or after four years, you know, you know, we will do that. But the main and the important thing is the length of time that a patient has signed for consent. And that's really the time when we feel as though we can sort of discard these samples and that means that there are you know there's a large percentage of samples which in jewels all over the world which are just unclaimed and getting back to the study which i mentioned mentioned before the clinic which has only been running for five years or so when that looked at how many samples were unclaimed there was 25 percent of samples which they think that they will never be used at all and that is and that is quite a large amount of samples you can think about it on various levels you can think about it on the ethical ground you can think about it on the economical ground but you can think about it as the space that a clinic has and it has to keep storing these samples so in terms of what can be done, because when we've tried to talk about it, it's not really a conversation that as a patient embarking on treatment, you're really thinking about what happens to those frozen embryos down there. That's what you hope to have, not what you're going to do with them. But mm. this whole idea of what they can be used for, and I only learned when we went through the process of donating to science, how grateful the embryologists were and how precious this material is in terms of having accessibility to it and I'd kind of taken it on board as being a something I wanted to highlight that okay if you're stuck and you don't know what to do then you don't want to donate to somebody else and you're not going to have further treatment then this is a really good thing that you're doing is there an awareness piece there to say to the to try and get to the patient to say look okay you might not want this and you might not even want to think about it but look you could really help this cause 
is there a missing piece oh, here? Well, yes, it's, it is up to every clinic to sort of, you know, stress what can be done with the frozen embryos. But also before that, if a patient comes through and there are embryos after the embryo transfer, then that is a good thing. The people undergoing the, you know, the treatment have a chance to continue on their family. Uh, it means that samples can be stored again. Um, and it means they haven't got to go through, of course, a lot of the IVF treatment that they had to do before. So it's good for them to be aware of that, but it's good at a very early stage to make them aware of what the intentions could be. Okay. Now, no one wants to think about that. And of course, everyone wants to get pregnant with the first attempt. And of course, many do. But they've still got these samples to think about. So, you know, it's good to have these discussions. They can be donated to research. And when we do talk about research, sometimes perhaps your mind sort of, you know, wanders to, you know, like embryo research, you know, what goes on. This is for improving the, you know, the IVF, you know, technique. So it could be looking at new culture media. It's not going to be used in any other fertility treatment. It's, you know, it's a very good way to actually help the IVF success get even higher. Another thing that people can do, of course, is to donate them for training. Now, there's a vast amount of, of embryologists that we need to train up. And that relies on a lot of patients who, in fact, kindly donate their spare embryos or their spare eggs or even their spare semen samples to embryologists to practice their skills you know, at an early stage. Or again, to do some new techniques they could do with this valuable material. There's a push really for the HFEA also to get the clinics to inform the patients of their choices. Um, and there are leaflets and there are sort of um, drives you know, to get people to be aware, you know, information sheets to make people aware of what they can do with, you know, with a sample. Because I don't know if they are. I, I just think there's a stopping point of people's thinking that they just can't think past that. They just want to know they're there and they just can't yeah. make yeah, the decision. Sure. And yeah. I know when I said this exists and it made me feel this and people were like, didn't even think about that far. So I get well, what you're saying that it's down to the clinics, but I don't think they are actually tapping well, into you mentioned, it. You know, it's sometimes a very, you know, a very difficult question, but you know, for the vast majority, if the storage fees can be, you know, like maintained, and there is this contact and, you know, we do ask patients to keep in contact with the clinics, then there's not a problem. And you can sort of leave that into limbo until, you know, the natural course of the consent, you know, finishes. And then you can decide that. You see, because Kate, you mentioned about moving house 20 times and, you know, keeping up your admin. I know when we moved house during the time we had embryos in storage, I knew it was high on my list of places to inform of my address. Okay, yeah, So yeah. it's interesting where you're at. But then I also know of people who have said that they ignore the letters, asking them to pay for the storage because... They just don't know what they're going to do. And if yeah. they decide to actually go ahead and do anything, then they kind of see that they just pay the chunk that they might owe. The embryologists really don't want to deal with this. And, and, and again, we do have patients, you know, that phone up and say, like, you know, how much do we owe and whatever. But you can understand that this money is for the upkeep of that. And if it's not coming in, then there must be a way around that so that there can be that. But the vast majority is so that people do keep, you know, the, you know, the storage fee is so that people do keep in contact. So they do pay this relatively small amount every year, you know, just to know that they are stored and they are stored safe. I think it but varies I, that relatively small amount from clinic to clinic. I think ours was £350 a year. I don't know if that's a relatively small amount in your, t in uh, your eyes. Well, well, I wouldn't call that a relatively small well, exactly. amount. Exactly. So that's what uh, I mean. I think you know, it varies from clinic that. to clinic. Yeah. But it, it may focus the mind, perhaps, you know, that kind of fear, I just, say, you know. I just think the whole subject and the whole decision-making is so emotive that 
I can see that people just want to bury their head in the sand about it and don't want to confront it because it's just yeah, yeah. so painful and difficult to make that decision either to keep or to decide to let go. And I can't imagine, and I know Nat, when you were making, and we're not going to talk about it today, but I know when you were making that decision, I couldn't imagine how difficult that would be for anybody to have to go through that. And it is that point of just, it's too difficult. I just don't want to confront it. And I can see that's why people go quiet. I can see your point of view and we know this and we feel this as well. Yeah. When the decision is, you know, what shall I do with my frozen embryos? Um, and a lot, obviously, just leave it down to the course of time. Time for them, of course, because, you know, their family and, and hopefully they will have a family, that, you know, that'll move on and, and, and their family will grow and then mature and they won't see that need again for the embryos. But for some, uh, whether they're successful or not, even in the first years, it's, you know, there's a str- you know, there's a very strong tie to those embryos. But these are the people that are going to keep in touch. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I wonder if when you're listening to this, you're thinking, gosh, I'd never imagine not knowing where I was at with my storage or of course I'm going to keep in touch. Even if I'm not going to do anything, I'm not going to let that clinic lose me. It almost seems unfathomable to think that you just leave that part of what is such a, a significant life experience somewhere and not go back. But like you say, life might well take over. And before we knew it, we were, you know, we didn't make this decision till I think Phoenix was five or six. So that was five years of the, we'd had the free year of storage or whatever, and then we'd paid for however long, but it was a very prominent thing that was, and I, and, and I think that's the thing. It seems unfathomable that there are so many that aren't being utilized when there is that connection. You say there's a perfect storm. In terms of the patient, what would you as an embryologist like uh, uh, somebody listening who might be starting treatment, they might have had treatment and have frozen embryos. And also if you are listening and you haven't had frozen embryos, and we're fully aware that this conversation in itself, as we said at the start, might be hard to hear, but it is an inevitable part of the treatment that you'd, you, you hope for. If you could give a piece of wisdom Giles to people well uh, well I don't know about that Jerry Springer's last thought oh well I don't know about that but I mean the thing is you know first of all to you know keep in contact with your clinic and we've mentioned so much you know about the IVF cases but there's a growing need for you know cryo storage for fertility fertility preservation and that by definition will be longer than you know the span of of needing it for IVF because it could be that, you know, someone um, like, you know, has to recover from cancer treatment or, or even, you know, a life choice to have these gametes later on in life. So these are going to be long-term storage, aren't they? So again, um, for the patient, it's to keep in contact with the clinic. It's to make choices. There will be more choices in the future. There will be choices to either store in the clinic that we've said or in an off-site facility, okay? But also... If you're not happy with, um, you, you know, the treatment, with the communication, or even with the cost from your clinic, they are yours. And we always say that, you know, you know, whatever happens, um, of course, they're yours. And you can take them elsewhere where you think you'll be better served and you'll have a better treatment. But again, rest assured that the latest technology is being used to store these samples, to maintain these samples. The embryologists spend a lot of time not not just on the quality control to make sure that they're topped up with liquid nitrogen and they are you know integral and they are intact but also with the alarms with the critical monitoring that they do so they can rest assured for that but again 
if they believe that their samples would be best served elsewhere, then of course they can transfer them. And I then just of had course... a flash of the future of cryo. Okay. Oh, good. Tell me. Tell well, me. Yeah. Space. I'm going to go full circle back to the very beginning of this podcast, Natalie. When you said space, there you go. We'll be we'll be storing it in space. Well, Giles well, is doing I'm... quite a lot of work with NASA, aren't you? Well, we are. Yes, we are. Yeah. And when you did mention space, my, you know, my eyes sort of lit up because we are talking about seed ships. Okay. But we we'll leave. Oh, yes. Oh, my oh, yes. goodness. Wow. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. We're totally sci fiing you out now. That's amazing. Well, I love this. I mean, I mean, now it's took on a different, you know, a different turn. Obviously, it's a thing that my organization have done a lot about because of our fertility hazards of space travel and people are popping up to space every five minutes now aren't they you know even on these like commercial you mean you know, the impact space, space travel has on a person's fertility exactly yeah. exactly and now the research is coming out you see and now people want to go to the moon people want to go to mars so this is why there's a lot of work being done there's a lot of testing of sperm also in the international space station that's mm. been going on as well but since you mentioned where to store them of course you know the long-range future is to have these seed ships for them seed to... Seed you know, ships. I just love spooky, that. Isn't it? I mean, Amazing. you can just see yeah, these yeah. big and you, like, walking along, like, you'd had... Was it in the was it in the Matrix or, or was it Avatar when they have, like, all the all the bodies and... Oh, love it. And you can just well, see... Could be that, but I'd go to Interstellar myself, you see. Okay. Wow. Interstellar. Well, this could be another podcast. It's over to you. You can let well, us know if so. you want yeah. us to have uh, a further conversation about seed stories. Giles, thank you so much. I know that there's a lot more that we could talk about, but I think you've given a really interesting overview of the issue. Not that we're trying to cause any alarm, but if anything, we just want to ensure that you know what's going on with, as Giles said, your precious cargo. So Giles, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Another geek fest with us going behind the scenes, talking about IVF, talking about frozen embryos. and, And I really hope that you found this conversation useful and interesting just to have another level of understanding about what is happening with your frozen embryos um and Kate and I were just deciding whether to ask you you know do you care about where your embryos are um because until I started to learn more about this issue from talking with Giles and also just understanding more about cryo storage I just assumed they were at my clinic but that might not be the case they might be in a separate storage facility does that matter? Well, hopefully not. And I'm not wanting to say any of this to scare anybody. But what do you think, Kate? Do you think a patient wants to know where their embryos are? I think like you, I think they would assume that they're Mm. in the clinic and probably not even consider that they would be in a different location to that. So I think maybe we've opened up a bit of a can of worms here. Well, I mean, let us know, because like we say, we're not trying to scare you. It's not like the clinic doesn't know where they are. They've not just been left on the side of the road in a dewer um, <laughs> or, or sent to space. But I think it's a really interesting thing to think about. Yet. To know yet. Yeah, or sent yeah, in a seed ship. Um, <laughs> but when he was even saying, you know, ultimately, these are yours and you can do what you want. I don't remember feeling that those embryos were mine to do with what I you know, like I could just go and go, right, put them in that pot and let me take them home. It felt like I had to make this decision of I either use them, I donate them, or I or I um, let them perish. It How was... many people do you reckon would like to take their embryos home? Do you think that's, have you heard people talking about that before? I've heard a few conversations about people wanting to do things like I was wondering whether to bury them. Yeah, and <laughs> but, put them underneath but, a rose bush on yeah, top, you know. But mm. you, you, you're not, from what I understood, you're not really allowed to. So we need to just check. 
that. And maybe if you've got experience you want to share, if you remember what we did after we'd made the decision to donate, I went to the coast and we cast out some roses and, you know, it was just a moment of marking, you know, the the decision because it was a huge decision. And I think that wherever you're at, if you're at this point, if you're listening to this podcast because you're at the point of needing to make a decision, I just hope that it's made you think a little bit about your options to help you know, others. I don't know about that compassionate embryo transfer. It'd be interesting to see if we can find out a bit more about that. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I think I think there's falls and against for that, really. And there's also one of the things that we talked about was just having a kind of natural cycle. So you don't have to have a medicated cycle. You can just have a natural cycle. And get in touch and let us know your thoughts on what we've shared. Uh, we don't ever claim to know everything. We just try to deliver useful information that is evidence-based. As you heard, it's referring to papers. We'll put that paper in the show notes if you're interested. You can contact me on my socials. I'm at Fertility Poddy. And I'm at Your Fertility Nurse. And thank you, as always, for joining us. Do be sure to rate and review this podcast. Let others know it's worth listening. We love hearing what you think. And until the next time. So thanks again to this series sponsor, Tomorrow, who can track and monitor the vitrified eggs and embryos stored within its system through its unique and proprietary RFID technology. Their solution also removes most of the manual steps in the current cryomanagement process, reducing the possibility of human mistakes. So to learn more or to talk to your healthcare provider about storing your embryos or eggs with Tomorrow, visit tomorrow.org. That's T-M-O-R-W dot org.